Hi, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, episode 108, The 30 Tyrants. At the close of the last episode, Samos was the lone holdout among Athenian allies in the eastern Aegean, as they refused to turn against the Athenians and capitulate to Lysander and the Spartans. Therefore, the Spartan fleet placed the island of Samos under blockade and besiegement before sailing into Athens and doing the same there. By April of 404 BC, the Athenians finally agreed to surrender, and Lysander oversaw the enforcement of the peace terms. In exchange for Athens being left intact, and its people alive and free, all of their exiles were to return home. These were mostly oligarchically-minded men, friendly to Sparta. Athens was to be governed by its ancestral constitution. What this meant was unclear, and it soon would become a point of contention. They were to give up their claim to all of the cities that they held in their empire, though they would maintain possession of their territory in Attica. And finally, they were to make the port of Piraeus tax-free. Defensively, they would agree to the destruction of their long walls and the fortifications around Piraeus. They would disband their army, and they would surrender all but a dozen ships. These were to be designated for commercial use only, and were probably the sacred ships, Peralis and Salaminia, and the ten ships dedicated to the ten Attic tribes. Athens also would become Sparta's ally, and followed the Spartans as their leaders on land and sea, on whatever campaign they should order them to join, which in effect turned Athenian foreign policy over to Spartan control. According to Xenophon, Lysander decided to make a holiday of this historic event. He brought out flute girls, like the ones who perform at Symposia, and Sparta's allies, covered with wreaths of flowers, danced and rejoiced as Athens' walls started to be torn down. At the same time, Aegis's army tore down their camp at Decalia, and then he dispersed his various detachments back to their own cities. Then, Lysander instructed the Athenians to finish the destruction of their long walls and the walls of Piraeus, while he returned to Samos, the lone holdout, in order to complete its besiegement and thus bring the entire Aegean under his control. When Lysander arrived, he prepared to make a final assault. Ultimately, though, the Samian Democrats in control of the city surrendered, as they likely received the news that the Athenians themselves had capitulated as well. In return for their surrender, they were allowed to depart safely from Samos, but with only one cloak, while all of their other possessions remained behind and were handed over to the Spartan army. Lysander then turned control of the city and everything in it over to Samos's pro-oligarchic citizens, who had previously been exiled. He established a group of ten magistrates to watch over it as a decarchia, and he appointed a Spartan garrison to keep the peace, with Thorax as Harmost. Then, he dismissed the various naval contingents of Sparta's allies back to their individual cities, while he returned to Sparta with his Laconian ships, plus the triremes from Piraeus that the Athenians surrendered as part of the peace deal. He also brought with him the prowls of all the ships that he had captured during his command, the garlands that he received as gifts for himself from the cities, around 470 talents of silver, which was the amount that remained from the money that Cyrus had given to him to prosecute the war and all other booty that he had acquired in the course of the fighting. He gave all of these things to the Spartan people. Meanwhile, in the wake of Athens' surrender, many of those who had been sent into exile by the Athenian democracy, but were allowed to return thanks to Lysander, slowly began to make their way back to the city. 
Many of these were now bitter enemies of the Democrats, and they were hard at work in the months after the treaty. According to Lysias, in his Against Agoratus, the Boule at that time had an oligarchic bias, and a man named Agoratus often spoke out against prominent Democrats. Ultimately, five overseers were appointed by the members of the oligarchic social clubs to plan the transition to an oligarchy. And in cahoots with the tribal commanders, or philarchoi, they often intimidated citizens with their pro-oligarchy agenda before meetings of the ecclesia. The overseer's main leader was Critias. He had a noble lineage, as his great-grandfather was an intimate friend of Solon, and he himself was the first cousin of Plato. Critias was a brilliant intellectual and an avowed atheist, who had been trained by the great rhetorician and sophist Gorgias. At one point, he was in the inner circle of Socrates, along with his cousin Plato, Xenophon, and various other bright young Athenian men of the upper classes. However, at some point, Socrates and Critias had a falling out, because Critias was said to have been very greedy, something that Socrates did not approve of. Critias also was noted in his day for his tragedies, elegies, and prose compositions, though only fragments of his works have come down to us. He was a longtime admirer of the Spartan constitution, and by this point had turned very sharply against democracy as a result of his exile for being a member of the 400. So now that he was back from his banishment, he returned with a vengeance. Many other people also were not very friendly to democracy, because democracy had just lost the war, and nobody could really understand how that had happened, given the great power of Athens. So they came to believe that it must have been because of the idiotic decisions made by the democracy. And so, since Sparta won the war, it was easy for them to believe that the characteristics that the Spartan city-state had must be the best ones, because they did the most critical thing that a city-state could do which was to win in competitions, in the form of warfare. And so Critias had in mind to replace the democracy with a very narrow oligarchy, similar to the Spartan Garrosia. He wished to limit participation in the government of any kind and citizenship rights to only 3,000 out of the entire Athenian adult male population that was something like 21,000 at this time. That's also about how many total Spartiates there were at the end of the war. Another thing Critias wished to do was to drive out from the city of Athens into the lands of Attica all those who were not part of the 3,000, similar to what Sparta had done with the Perioikoi. All of this was probably not an accident, but a conscious effort to model the future Athenian state upon the Spartans. However, since Athens had been a democracy for over a hundred years, it was not going to be easy to impose a too narrow and too oligarchical regime, and Critias would be opposed in this endeavor by Theramenes. Although Theramenes was sympathetic to Sparta and willing to sacrifice democratic principles when necessary, he was not a committed oligarch. At the same time, as we have seen, Theramenes was an Athenian general who flourished during the democracy but was very clearly not an old-fashioned democrat either, since he had taken part in bringing about the oligarchic revolution of 400. His propensity for landing on his feet in any crisis has suggested to some that he was a flexible man who saw merit in a variety of regimes, meaning he was a moderate, whereas others have seen him as an unprincipled double-dealer who would join the side of whoever was in charge. Whatever the case, he was not as narrow as Critias, 
and being a general himself, he believed that the criterion for participation in government was that they had to be a hoplite, meaning they had to have the wealth necessary to fight in the infantry for their city. At this time, it is believed that only around 9,000 of 21,000 Athenian adult males would have met this criterion. Therefore, he wanted to include 6,000 more in his government than Critias. As you would expect, during this time, there was a confrontation of different ideas and feelings in Athens, and there arose very hard divisions and very tense feelings between the different groups, as some were in favor of narrow oligarchies, others more moderate ones, and a few even wanted to keep their democracy intact. These various opinions percolated over April and May of 404 BC. Eventually, things came to a head in July when an Athenian oligarch named Dracontides proposed a motion in the Ecclesia for 30 men to be selected in order to establish a constitution on the basis of their ancestral laws. Diodorus records that Theramenes and the majority of the people opposed this motion, so Lysander was summoned back to Athens to force the change of government. When he arrived in September of 404 BC, backed by Spartan troops, he called a meeting of the Ecclesia, in which he essentially ordered the Athenians to ratify Dracontides' motion. When Theramenes opposed him and read to him the terms of the peace, which agreed that they should enjoy the government of their fathers, Lysander retorted that the terms of peace had been broken by the Athenians for failing to dismantle the walls quickly enough. He also threatened to put Theramenes to death if he did not stop opposing his orders. Therefore, an intimidated Theramenes and the rest of the Athenian Ecclesia, with a show of hands, were compelled to pass Dracontides' motion, thus ratifying a new government, known as the Thirty. They were elected as a government, not just as a legislative committee, but we lack any details about their power structure. All we know is that Critias had the most power and influence, as the Thirty were composed of twenty of his men, representing the very extreme oligarchs, and the other ten were those who supported Theramenes, as they were the moderate oligarchs. In fact, Theramenes himself was elected as one of the thirty because the people hoped that his honorable principles, to some extent, would act as a check on the others. Although we have the names of all thirty members, thanks to Xenophon listing them all out, as well as brief mentions in several of the works of Lysias, Plato, and Aristotle, most of them are just names with very little background information available to us. The 30's stated purpose was to frame a new constitution based on their ancestral laws, and their powers as a governing body were only to last until they had completed this deed. The majority of them, though, had no serious thoughts of constructing the ancestral constitution and then giving up power. Instead, they saw this as merely a pretext for getting into power, and now their only objective was to ensure that power would be retained in their own hands. They continually postponed writing the laws down and publishing them for all to see, but enacted justice in an arbitrary manner, as it seemed best to them. 4th century BC Athenians would refer to this new government as Hoi Triaconta Tyranoi, or the Thirty Tyrants, for their cruel and oppressive tactics in instituting a narrow oligarchic regime and abolishing the organs of democratic government. However, the Thirty were not unanimous in their intentions and actions. At least one of them, Theramenes, had no taste for a pure oligarchy, but was still genuinely intent on framing a constitution with both oligarchic and democratic elements. 
This dissension would lead to their relatively quick disunion, as the 30 would only be able to maintain power for 8 months from September of 404 BC until May of 403 BC. Still, the first measures of the 30 in establishing their control over the city were carried out with cordial agreement. They began to revise, if not erase, the democratic laws inscribed on the wall next to the Stoa Basileos in the Athenian Agora. They removed the laws of Ephialtes and Archistratus from the Areopagus, canceled the sovereignty of the popular courts, the Dicasteria, established a new boule of 500 with members sympathetic to their oligarchic cause, and appointed a new archon, Pythodorus, to serve their new government's judicial functions. They established a new board of the Eleven, who were the guardians of the prison, and placed them under the command of a violent, unscrupulous man named Satyros, as well as a new board of ten, to watch over the population of Piraeus, which was rightly considered a hotbed of democratic radicalism. The Thirty also moved swiftly to eliminate every trace of the democratic navy. The shipsheds of the Piraeus, built at the cost of 1,000 talents and among the architectural wonders of the Greek world, were demolished, and the wood was sold to salvagers for three talents each. Finally, on the Penix Hill, where the speaker's platform for meetings of the Ecclesia had always faced out to the sea, the Thirty ordered that it should be reversed to look inland instead turning it away from the dangerous element that had fostered the Athenian maritime empire. In the opening portion of his seventh letter, the philosopher Plato, or someone using Plato's name as a pseudonym, recounts the rule of the Thirty during his youth, which corroborates the general consensus found in other sources. The letter in particular describes the philosopher's joy at the ascension of thoughtful intellectuals who wanted to reform the constitution along Spartan lines and Aristotle, or someone using Aristotle as a pseudonym, in a treatise called The Constitution of the Athenians, echoes the view that the beginning of the new regime seemed full of promise. Quote, At the outset, they were engaged in removing the blackmailers and the persons who consorted undesirably with the people to curry favor and were evildoers and scoundrels. And the state was delighted at these measures, thinking that they were acting with the best intentions. End quote. Included in this removal of all criminals and unsavory characters, the Thirty executed all of the known sycophants, who were men that made money out of denouncing people on false charges in the courts, winning payments as a result, and thus were very widely unpopular among the upper classes. The regular people were also not sorry to see them go. So far, there was relative agreement in the Thirty's actions, but at this point, Theramenes likely would have stopped because soon afterwards, the Thirty began to scheme about which steps that they might take to permit them to run the city however they liked. They first sent two of the Thirty, Ascanes and Aristoteles, to Sparta to request that Lysander send them a garrison, which they argued was necessary to help them establish a form of government that would best serve his interests. He agreed and arranged for 700 troops to be sent back with them. When they arrived in Athens, the Spartan soldiers were installed atop the Acropolis. Their commander was the Harmost, Calibius, and the Thirty fawned over him in every way and won his loyalty with bribes so that he would not oppose any of the steps that they wished to take. With Spartan soldiers backing them, they now began to preside over a reign of terror, 
in which they not only arrested the wrongdoers and criminals, but began to go after those that they believed could challenge their power. In doing so, they hired 300 whip-bearers to intimidate Athenian citizens into providing them information. When trumped up charges of treason, they arrested and put to death, without trial, all those that they thought might possess sufficient initiative and wouldn't accept being pushed aside and kept out of public life, and also those who would be able to mobilize large numbers of citizens. In particular, they went after all of the known former leaders of the democracy, meaning those people who were their political opponents. But some of them managed to escape, such as Thrasybulus. In addition, this reign of terror included not only prominent Democrats, but also men of oligarchic views who were unfriendly to the injustice and illegality of the Thirty. One of the victims was Nicaratus, the son of Nicias, who Diodorus says was first among all Athenians in reputation and wealth. Another was Autolycus, a successful pancreast, whom Xenophon makes the chief character in his work The Symposium, which was held in honor of his victory at the Panathenate Games. The scene of the symposium is the house of Callias, to which Autolycus and his father have been invited, together with Socrates and some of his friends and followers. According to Plutarch in his Life of Lysander, at one point, Autolycus had defeated the Spartan Harmost, Calibius, by tripping up his heels and throwing him to the ground. In response, Calibius hit Autolycus with a staff, after which he was scolded by Lysander, who told him that he didn't know how to govern free men. But the thirty soon after had Autolycus killed in order to appease Calibius's pride. Very quickly, the motives of fear and revenge devolved into an appetite for plunder, and some men were executed just because they were rich, while others fled, happy to escape with their lives. According to Aristotle, the thirty, quote, kept their hands off none of the citizens, but put to death those of outstanding wealth or birth or reputation intending to put that source of danger out of the way, and also desiring to plunder their estates, end quote. In total, the ancient sources estimated that around 1,500, or 5% of all Athenian citizens, might have been killed by the 30, a very large percentage of the population, in just eight months' time. Critias evidently aimed to end democracy, regardless of the human cost. If history is any indicator... The violence and the brutality that the Thirty carried out was probably a necessity in order to transition Athens from a democracy to an oligarchy, but it produced an unanticipated paradox. The more violent the Thirty's regime became, the more opposition that they faced. Although he was a member of the Thirty and initially a supporter of Critias, Theramenes grew increasingly more troubled with the bloodbath that was happening under Critias's direction. Ultimately, it drove a wedge between him and the rest of his colleagues. Enough was enough, and during one meeting of the Thirty, he stood up and argued that it was unnecessary to execute men who had shown no sign of wishing the oligarchy harm, just because they had been popular under the democracy. Xenophon records him as saying, quote, Even you and I have said and done many things in order to gain favor with the people. End quote. Critias, at that point, still continued to treat Theramenes as a friend and not an enemy, and so he replied that men who wanted more power for themselves could not avoid getting rid of those who were most able and willing to stop them. He retorted, quote, If you think that because we are 30 and not one, that we can take less care to protect our rule, 
rather than a tyranny, then you are a simpleton, end quote. The implication here is that the 30 must act like tyrants in order to protect their rule because leniency would bring about their downfall and likely their own lives. Theramenes' protest here ultimately failed to slow the pace of the unjust executions, and many Athenians began to openly worry about what would become of their city-state, as so many were being put to death or fleeing the city. So in another meeting, Theramenes again spoke out with more force, warning that if an oligarchy was to govern by might, it must at least expand its base, and pointed out the contradiction of a minority in the state driving out people instead of bringing them in to make them stronger, thus guaranteeing that they will have more enemies than allies. Inevitably, the 30 had grown apprehensive about the possibility of a resistance movement, and they now came to suspect that such a movement might inevitably be spearheaded by Theramenes. So Critias, hoping to prevent this, agreed to broaden the oligarchy, and issued a list of 3,000 men who he felt were suitable enough to be his associates in the new government. But Theramenes objected to this on the grounds that this number was far too small and too arbitrary, as it would leave a lot of good men outside this group. Still, without Theramenes' knowledge, Critias and his faction schemed to make their 3,000 a reality. The 30 arranged for a military review to be staged, after which the citizens were ordered to pile up their arms. Those 3,000 who were on the list were placed in the agora, while the other citizens who were not on the list were reviewed at different places throughout the city. With the help of the Spartan garrison, the 30 then confiscated all arms, except those belonging to the 3,000 in the agora, taking them to the Acropolis and depositing them in the Parthenon. These hand-selected individuals were the only Athenians who didn't have their rights removed, as they still maintain the right to carry weapons, to have a jury trial, and to reside within city limits. Although little is known about these 3,000 men, as a complete record was never documented, Xenophon says that the list of the selected 3,000 was consistently revised. In addition, a thousand cavalrymen also served as the 30's personal militia. Some scholars have inferred that another of Socrates' former students, Xenophon, might have played an important part in the rule of the Thirty here as one of the two commanders of their cavalry. Although there were always two, in his Hipparchus, or commander of the cavalry, and in his Hellenica, Xenophon only ever mentions one of the commanders, a man named Lysimachus, while never mentioning the other. So the belief is that Xenophon might have been the other cavalry commander, and he purposely failed to mention himself by name so as to avoid pointing out his connection with the Thirty. Whatever the case, this marked the beginning of even greater abuses. Because according to Xenophon, the Thirty now believed that they could act as tyrants without fear. They forbid those not on the list of the 3,000 from entering the city of Athens. And with almost all of their citizens now unarmed, the Thirty began to put many men to death simply out of personal enmity or because of their wealth. In fact, in order to pay the wages of the Spartan garrison, Critias ordered each of the Thirty to arrest and execute one medic and confiscate that man's property. As we discussed in episode 69, medics, or resident aliens, were particularly numerous in Athens, and a few of them were among the wealthiest people in the city. They just weren't citizens who had any political rights. Therefore, not all the victims of the 30 were citizens who could possibly have been conceived as political enemies, and many were just wealthy men whose property the 30 coveted. 
To these judicial murders and this organized system of plundering, Theramenes protested that this action was far worse than the worst excesses of the democracy and refused to follow the order. Presumably, though, the other 29 men each executed a medic. One such example was the speechwriter Lysias and his brother Polemarchus, whose father had earlier moved his family from their native Syracuse at the invitation of Pericles. Since their family kept a lucrative manufacturing factory for shields, they both were arrested, and their family's valuables were plundered. The 30s goons even ripped out the golden earrings from the ears of Polemarchus's wife. While Lysias was able to escape from the house where he was confined and flee Athens, Polemarchus was not so lucky, and he was put to death. This was supposedly on the orders of Eratosthenes, one of the few among the thirty for whom we know a bit about, because he is the subject of a legal oration by Lysias, entitled Against Eratosthenes. We will discuss Lysias and this oration in more detail later. While many Athenians were executed or driven into banishment, others were required to assist in the arresting of their fellow citizens. If they refused, they would be considered accomplices and share in the punishments. In Plato's Apology, Socrates recounts an incident in which the Thirty once summoned him and four others to the council chamber and commanded them to go and arrest a certain Leon of Salamis from his home for execution. According to Plato, this Leon was a man well known for his justice and upright character, and scholars have speculated that he may also be the renowned Athenian general who had evaded execution previously because he was trapped with Conan at Mytilene, while the other generals fought at Argonusae. Whatever the case, while the other four obeyed, Socrates refused, without hesitation, to do the bidding of the Thirty, saying that he would not do anything unjust or unholy. Therefore, while the other four went to Salamis and arrested Leon, who was later executed, Socrates simply went home. In another account, Xenophon, in his memorabilia, reports a contentious confrontation between Socrates and the Thirty. Socrates is summoned before the group and ordered not to instruct or even to speak to anyone, whereupon Socrates mocks the order by asking, sarcastically, whether he will be allowed to ask to buy food in the Agora. Xenophon uses the episode to illustrate both Socrates' own critique of the slaughtering of Athenian citizens by the Thirty, as well as to make the case that the relationship between Critias and Socrates had significantly deteriorated by the time that Critias had obtained power. Ultimately, though, he was not punished for his defiance, possibly because Socrates was neither wealthy nor popular, but most likely due to Critias' influence, because despite the fact that the two had a falling out, he was still fond of his former teacher. Since Critias had been a student, and the fact that Socrates remained in the city through this entire period, the public later would associate him with the Thirty, which may have contributed to his eventual death sentence. But we are getting ahead of ourselves, and we will discuss that in more detail next episode. As for Alcibiades, Plutarch and Diodorus, through a forest, record his eventual end, but each provides a different account. After the defeat of Athens, Alcibiades now feared retribution from the Spartans, so he crossed the Hellespont from Thrace and took refuge in Bithynia. But the situation there soon grew untenable, so Plutarch says that he hoped to make his way to the court of the new Persian king, Artaxerxes, and offer his services to him, just as Themistocles once did when he was disgraced many decades earlier. Since Alcibiades believed that Pharnabasus could best assist him in his journey to the king, he first made his way to the satrap's court in Phrygia, where he was received warmly. 
Diodorus, though, says that Alcibiades wished to go to Artaxerxes, not because the situation in the Thracian Hellespont had grown untenable, but because he had learned that Cyrus and the Spartans were making secret plans for a joint war against him. More on that in a future episode. Meanwhile, back in Athens, Plutarch reports that the Thirty were sympathetic to the plight of Alcibiades, who they believed had been unjustly treated. But when the multitude began clamoring for his return to Athens in order to remove the insolence of the Spartans and the Thirty, their feelings began to change. Finally, Critias made it clear to Lysander that Athens would not be disposed towards oligarchy so long as Alcibiades was alive. Lysander agreed, but he did not take any immediate action until he received orders from Sparta. But once he consulted with the Spartan authorities back home, they gave him permission to hunt down Alcibiades likely because they were trying to gratify Aegis, who still held an undying hatred for the rogue Athenian. Accordingly, Lysander sent to Pharnabasis and requested that he execute Alcibiades. Diodorus again reports something different, saying that Pharnabasis had learned why Alcibiades wished to go to Artaxerxes, and so he wished to murder him on his own accord before anyone else got the chance. He then commissioned his brother, Magius, and his uncle, Susamithros, to perform the deed. Plutarch reports that at that time, Alcibiades had been staying in Phrygia with a courtesan named Tamandra, and on one night, in his sleep, he was said to have envisioned his forthcoming death, in which he was covered in her garments. Meanwhile, the party sent to kill him surrounded the house and set it on fire. When Alcibiades awoke to his room in flames, he grabbed his sword and leapt through the window, unscathed by the fire, and scattered the Persian forces but he was quickly cut down by their arrows. Unknowingly fulfilling his vision, Tamandra took up his dead body, covered and wrapped him in her own garments, and gave him an honorable burial. Back in Athens, understandably, many were appalled and frightened by the actions of the Thirty. In fact, the majority of the boule had now come to share Theramenes' objections and grew to hate their new imposed form of government. However, most of those who did not approve of the new laws still accepted them, and the 30s regime did not meet much overt opposition. But a select few Athenians did band together and openly fought back by lodging public complaints. So the 30 began to go after them. They confiscated many of their farms and took over possession of their estates. This created a dangerous body of exiles. Some fled to Piraeus, though the 30 evicted many from there too. They ultimately escaped into the Attic countryside before going into exile in neighboring territories. Those most receptive to these anti-30, anti-oligarchical, anti-Spartan exiles were Corinth, Megara, and Thebes, who, interestingly enough, were all enemies of Athens and democracy. However, these polis had grown deeply concerned by the Spartan refusal to destroy Athens and instead to replace the Athenian government with a rabidly pro-Spartan decarchia which turned into the Thirty Tyrants. At the same time, the employment of the Decarchii, combined with the levying of tribute of over a thousand talents per year from Athens' former subject allies, bore all the hallmarks of imperialism from Sparta. Also, they all shared in the fighting during that long war, but they did not share equally in the booty that was taken at its conclusion. Therefore, they were both angry at the Spartans and fearful that Sparta would one day become a menace to their own autonomy. And so, on account of their grievances, they began to resist Sparta and accepted this small number of Athenians. 
The Spartans, knowing about this, sent out an order saying that no state should give any home to these exiles, and that they should be returned to the Thirty immediately, under the threat of a fine of five talents. The city-states of Corinth, Megara, Elia, and Argos all defied this order. But the Thebans took it a step further and voted that if any Boeotian should see anyone carrying arms against the tyrants, they should let them pass unnoticed and unmentioned, and that if they witnessed an Athenian exile being led off and didn't give them help, they themselves would be subjected to a heavy fine. The most important of the leaders of this group of Athenian exiles was Thrasybulus who had been an admiral during the latter part of the Peloponnesian War and was present at all of Athens' great victories, but not at their final defeat. He was one of the first to oppose the Thirty and had been exiled to Thebes shortly after their rise to power. There, he was welcomed and supported by the Theban leader Ismenius and his followers, and it was in Thebes that the Athenians under Thrasybulus mounted an attempt to retake the city back for the Democrats when he and another important politician, by the name of Anatus, began a counter-revolution. With only 70 men, they left Thebes and seized Philae, a natural fortress atop Mount Parnas, which sat just across the Attic-Boeotian border on the Athenian side. They built a fort there with strong stone walls in the hope that other discontented Athenians eventually would flee and join them in the resistance. However, most of those who showed up were not dissident former citizens, but medics that had been targets of the Thirty because of their wealth. Others, like Lysias the Order, used their money to hire mercenary soldiers to fight for Thrasybulus's Democrats as well. By December of 404 BC, the Thirty became worried enough about this nascent army to send a much bigger force of their own to get rid of them. So they dispatched their 3,000 hoplites and 1,000 cavalrymen. But in their initial attack, these men retreated when some were wounded. And so they next tried to wall off the democratic stronghold in order to cut off its access routes, by which they obtained supplies, and then lay siege to the place. But a timely snowstorm fell on Philae that evening, which prevented them from carrying out their plan and forced them to flee back to Athens. This time, the 70 Democrats rushed down from Philae and captured some of their baggage carriers as they retreated. After hearing about their victory, more and more Athenians joined Thrasybulus's forces, until eventually their numbers rose to 700. Critias and his faction were now in a dangerous position as they were menaced externally by Thrasybulus, against whom their attack had failed, and internally by a strong opposition group led by Theramenes, who had now become an intolerable threat on the verge of organizing a resistance movement. Because they couldn't do anything about Thrasybulus for the next few months until spring came, they decided to turn their focus that winter on plotting Theramenes' demise. They began to slander him in private, as one man said to another that he was trying to ruin their newly established government. Finally, in January 403 BC, they summoned Theramenes to the Buletarion for a meeting before the Council of 3000. And outside, they had stationed some younger oligarchs with concealed daggers. When Theramenes arrived, Critias stepped forward and made a speech, attacking him, accusing him of treason, and arguing that he is dangerous and must be executed. He called him a born traitor, always ready to shift his political allegiances with the expediences of the moment. Famously, he branded him with the nickname Cothornos, 
the name of a boot worn on the theatrical stage that could fit either foot, and so, just like the Cothornos, Theramenes too was ready to serve either political foot, meaning both the democratic or oligarchic cause, seeking only to further his own personal interest. When Critias finished his speech, he sat down. Then Theramenes arose, and in an impassioned response, he answered the charges of Critias one by one, and attacked him as the instigator of policies that were alienating Athens' friends and strengthening their enemies. He denied that his politics had ever been inconsistent. He insisted that he always had favored a moderate policy, neither extreme democracy nor extreme oligarchy, and he has held true to the ideal form of a government composed of men of hoplite status or higher who would be able to effectively serve the state. He finished by saying, quote, I always do battle with extremists, Critias, whether they are men who think that a good democracy must allow slaves and those so poor that they would betray the state for a drachma to have a share in the government, or whether they are men who think you cannot have a good oligarchy unless you bring the state under the tyranny of a few men, end quote. When Theramenes finished speaking, it was clear that his speech had a substantial effect on the audience, as there were many shouts of support, likely because the Council of 3000 were more sympathetic to his moderate cause than the narrower, harsher one of Critias. And so seeing this, Critias knew that if the case were brought to a vote, Theramenes would be acquitted. Accordingly, after conferring with the rest of the Thirty, Critias went outside and ordered those young men with concealed daggers to come into the bulletarian and to line themselves around the stage in front of the audience in full view of everyone. He then came back in himself and ordered Theramenes' name to be struck from the roster of the 3000, an act that would deny him his right to a trial since he would no longer be a citizen. An appearance of legality seems to have been given to this act, as a law was then passed presumably on the spot, that those who had opposed the 400 previously or taken part in destroying the fort at Etionii, as Theramenes had, should be excluded from the constitution. Regardless, the 30 then immediately voted to condemn him to death. Upon hearing this, Theramenes ran for sanctuary to the chamber's hearth, sacred to Hestia, where he calls on the council for justice in order to protect himself from Critias. He exclaims, quote, I am aware that this altar will not help me in any way, but I come to it to demonstrate that the thirty here are not only the most unjust in their dealings with men, but also the most impious in their respect for the gods. I am amazed that most of you, who are noblemen, are not defending yourselves, for you most surely know that my name is not more easily erased than any of yours." End quote. His appeal for protection from the council not to permit his murder was to no avail, though, as the onlookers were stupefied in terror by the sight of the bulletarian filled with young Athenian men armed with daggers. Also by now, some of the Spartan soldiers from the garrison had made an appearance. According to Diodorus, only Socrates and two of his friends came forward for his protection, but Theramenes begged them to spare themselves. While he appreciated their friendship and bravery, he did not want to be the cause of their deaths. Since nobody else stepped forward to help, Socrates and his friends were forced to step aside. Meanwhile, the Thirty had sent a herald to the Eleven, who were the officials responsible for the incarceration of condemned prisoners and for carrying out executions. When they arrived, they entered the Bulletarion, 
led by their leader Satyros, and arrested Theramenes. As they dragged him away from the altar and through the agora, he called upon both gods and men to bear witness to the injustice that was being done to him. The onlookers were terrified, and Diodorus records that some were moved to tears, not only for Theramenes, but out of fear for their own safety, because when they saw a man of such virtue as he be treated with such contempt, they concluded that they no doubt would be sacrificed without a thought. Finally, when they arrived at the prison, the eleven forced Theramenes to drink a cup of wine, poisoned with hemlock, which was the standard Athenian method of administrating the death penalty at the time. Theramenes, going out in style and not without irony, imitated a popular drinking game at Symposia called Katabos, in which the drinker toasted a loved one as he finished his cup by downing the wine, flinging the dregs to the floor, and exclaiming, quote, Here's to the health of my beloved Critias. Theramenes' line to the beloved or the beautiful, the Greek word is kalos, may allude to Critias's claim to be of the Kaloi Kagathoi, or one of the good and the fair noblemen, or it may be a curse since he dedicated to him his drink, not of wine, but of the poisonous hemlock. Whatever the case, Xenophon says that he admired how Theramenes, even when his death was at hand, did not lose his mind nor his sense of humor. Theramenes' brief seven-year career in the spotlight touched on all major points of controversy in the last years of the Peloponnesian War. Because of this, he has been subjected to a myriad of different interpretations, as both ancient and modern historians have struggled over how to interpret his actions. Ultimately, he was both idealized and reviled. In the immediate years after his death, his reputation became an item of contention, as former associates of his defended themselves against prosecutors under the restored democracy. It would appear that, as they defended themselves before democratic-sympathizing Athenian jurymen, Theramenes' former comrades in the oligarchy attempted to exculpate themselves by associating their actions with those of Theramenes and portraying him as a steadfast defender of the Athenian democracy. Examples of such accounts can be found in the histories of Diodorus and in the so-called Theramenes Papyrus, a fragmentary work discovered in the 1960s. An example of the sort of attack this portrayal was intended to defend against can be found in two orations of Lysias, titled Against Eratosthenes and Against Agoratus, which vigorously denounced him while prosecuting several of his former political allies. He portrays him as treasonous and self-interested, someone who caused tremendous harm to the Athenian cause through his machinations. Xenophon adopts a similarly hostile attitude in the early parts of his work, but apparently had a change of heart during the chronological break in composition that divides the second book of the Hellenica, as his portrayal of him during the reign of the Thirty is altogether more favorable than that of his earlier years. Aristotle, in his Constitution of the Athenians, portrays him as a moderate and model citizen. Historians have disputed the origin of this account, with some treating it as a product of 4th century BC propaganda by a moderate Theramanian party, while others see no evidence for such a tradition and argue that Aristotle's treatment of Theramenes is entirely a product of his own reassessment of the man. Diodorus, a historian active in the time of Julius Caesar, presents a generally favorable account of Theramenes, which appears to be drawn from the noted historian Ephorus, who studied in Athens under Isocrates, and who himself was taught by Theramenes. Finally, Aristophanes and the Frogs pokes fun at Theramenes' ability to extricate himself from tight spots, 
but delivers none of the scathing rebukes one would expect for a politician whose role in the shocking events after Argonusi had been regarded as particularly blameworthy. And modern scholars have seen in this a more accurate depiction of how Theramenes was perceived in his time. Theramenes' death has become famous for its drama, and the story of his final moments has been repeated over and over throughout classical historiography. Because he met his death, defying tyranny, it is easy to see why some throughout history have idealized Theramenes. But there is perhaps a dose of truth in the reproaches that Critias hurled at him across the floor of the council chamber. Still, although Theramenes may have been shifty and unscrupulous, where means and methods were concerned, in his main objective, he was perfectly sincere. His entire career reveals him to be a patriot and a true moderate, sincerely committed to a constitution granting power to the hoplite class, whether in the form of a limited democracy or a broadly based oligarchy. The constitution of the 5000 is seen as his political masterpiece, and he believed that this would unite the merits of both democracy and oligarchy and avoid their defects. But the very nature of this middle policy brought an appearance of insincerity and gave rise to suspicion, as it led him to oscillate between the democratic and oligarchical parties, with one foot in each as he sought to gain influence and support in both a view to the ultimate realization of his middle plan. And so, like many a person following a middle course, he was hated by both political extremes, as the Democrats suspected him as actually being an oligarch, and the oligarchs distrusted him as a Democrat in disguise. With the death of Theramenes and the elimination of their biggest internal menace, the Thirty then turned their attention to the external threat that was Thrasybolus. First, they sent ambassadors to him about the return of some prisoners, but Diodorus reports that their true intention was to advise him to dissolve his band of exiled followers and to take Theramenes' place as one of the Thirty. They further promised that if he did as they commanded, he could restore any ten exiles that he chose. He replied that he preferred to be in exile rather than join them, and that he would not end the war until all citizens, not just he, could return and the people got back their democratic government. Therefore, the civil war resumed. As winter came to an end, aware that the men at Philae would plunder their country estates until they were guarded, the Thirty then sent the 700 Spartan hoplites and their 1,000 Athenian cavalrymen to the border. About a mile and a half from Philae, they camped in rough terrain near Carni, where they kept watch and planned for a second attack on the rebel camp. But Thrasybulus would beat them to the punch. One evening, in early May of 403 BC, he led his 700 troops down from Philae to a position about 1,500 feet from the enemy, where they halted and waited. Just before daybreak, when the enemy's troops were going about their business and away from their weapons, armor, and horses, they surprised them with a raid on their camp. In the ensuing chaos, 120 Spartans and three Athenians were killed, and the rest were put to flight. Thrasybulus' forces then set up a victory trophy, packed up all of the arms that had been captured, and went back to Philae. Reinforcements soon arrived from Athens to bring help, but they found that the enemy was no longer there, so they waited until the relatives of the slain had taken up their corpses and then returned to the city. This incident produced considerable alarm back at Athens, and the Thirty began to fear that their rule was no longer secure, as many of their supporters began to waver. 
Deciding to secure an eventual place of refuge in case Athens should become untenable, the 30 and their 1,000 cavalrymen went to Eleusis on the northwestern frontier of Attica. Upon their arrival, they held an official review, claiming that they wanted to know how many Eleusinian men of military age there were, so that they could figure out how many additional men would be needed for a garrison. After every man's name was recorded, Eleusis' 300 military-aged males were all ordered to marshal outside the town's gates. But after they all arrived, the cavalry rounded them up and put them in chains. The 30 then ordered Lysimachus, the commander of the cavalry, to lead them back to Athens and hand them over to the 11, while they themselves followed behind. On the next day, the 30 called an ad hoc meeting of the 3,000 with instructions for them to meet in the Odeon, to the southeast of the Acropolis. With the 700 Spartan garrison troops in full armor behind them, Critias intimidated the 3,000 into voting to execute the 300 Eleusinian prisoners. He likely did so in order to make them criminal accomplices, so that it would be less likely in the future for the 3,000 to bring some legal action against them, or else they would risk legal repercussions themselves. Whatever the case, the 300 Eleusinian men were then executed. This measure had hardly been carried out when Thrasybulus mobilized his forces once again for action. In just five days after their last altercation, his numbers had grown to the point that he now had 1,200 troops. So that evening, he left behind 200 men to guard their post at Philae while he marched out the other 1,000 down to Piraeus. Once they arrived, they managed to gain control of and to fortify themselves on the Munichia, a hill that dominated the southeastern port, where they occupied the Temple of Artemis and a shrine to the Thracian goddess Bendis. The exiles awaited the coming attack as the 30's forces gathered in the Agora of Piraeus. Going against 3,000 Athenian hoplites, 1,000 Athenian cavalrymen, and 700 Spartan hoplites, Thrasybulus and his 1,000 men were outnumbered almost 5 to 1, as the depth of their line was no more than 10 men deep, while the 30's line was at least the depth of 50 men. A battle line 50 men deep is extraordinary, as hoplite battle formations were usually not deeper than 8 to 12. It means that the width of the front available on that road was quite narrow, which of course favored Thrasybulus and his men. In addition, stationed behind them were peltasts, light-armed javelin throwers, and rock throwers many of which came from the local neighborhoods. And so, they held the superior position and presumably benefited from anxiety amidst the ranks of the 30. As the enemy approached, Thrasybulus ordered his men to lower their shields, but to keep the rest of their weapons at the ready. Then, standing in the middle of them, he gave a pre-battle speech, reminding them of what they have suffered at the hands of the 30, of their past miraculous victories and of their strong tactical position on the hill of Munichia. He finished his speech by saying, quote, When it is the right moment, I shall begin the paean. When we call upon Ares, then let us all with one and the same spirit have our vengeance upon these men, in requital for all the wanton outrage we have endured at their hands. End quote. With these words, he then turned towards the enemy and waited since he had been informed by his seer that he must not attack before any of his own men were either killed or wounded. 
In fact, he was not wrong, because the seer also took up arms beside Thrasybulus, and when the thirty and their forces attempted to dislodge them in an uphill charge, he leapt out in front, attacked them, and was killed. At the sight of this, Thrasybulus ordered for a shower of javelins and darts to descend upon the enemy's heads, as he and his hoplites ran downhill to meet them. In the end, the thirty's forces were defeated in the so-called Battle of Munichia with 70 total Athenian casualties, including Critias, Hippomachus, and Charmides. Allegedly, Critias' funeral monument depicted the oligarchy setting fire to democracy and had an inscription referring to the hubris of the accursed Demos. Xenophon then mentions that the victors did not strip the dead corpses, and he makes no mention of them raising a trophy in honor of their victory either. This is a significant indication of fraternal feeling here, as they were Athenians fighting other Athenians for the most part. During the truce, which was then granted for taking up the dead, the citizens on either side held some conversation with one another, until finally, Cleocritus, the herald of the Eleusinian Mystai, who was impressive for his beautiful and loud voice, yelled out for silence and addressed the adherents of the Thirty in a moving speech emphasizing the common experiences of them all as Athenian citizens. He bellowed out, quote, Fellow citizens, why do you seek to kill us? Why do you force us into exile, us, who never did you wrong? We have shared in the same religious rites and festivals. We have been your schoolfellows and choir fellows. We have fought with you by land and by sea for freedom. We adjure you by our common gods. Abandon the cause of the thirty, monsters of impiety, who for their own gains have slain in eight months more Athenians than the Peloponnesians slew in the war of ten years. Believe that we have shed as many tears as you for those who have now fallen. End quote. He finished by imploring the other side to see the guilt and shamelessness of the thirty. This appeal produced such an effect upon the half-hearted soldiers of the thirty, who had now lost their leader Critias, that the remaining men marched back behind the city's walls. In Athens itself, in the wake of the battle, there arose dissension and discord among the 3,000. Some were fearful of retribution for some violent act that they had committed now that the Democrats were in a position to retake the city, while others no longer wished to follow the 30 and to allow them to continue to destroy the city. Being fully aware of this atmosphere in Athens, on the next day, the remaining members of the 30, who were very much humiliated and isolated, met with the 500 in the Bulletarian. The general sentiment in this meeting was that the government of the 30 could no longer be maintained, and if the oligarchy was to be rescued, a new government must be installed to replace it. A general meeting of the 3,000 then was called, in which they voted to depose the 30 and to set up a new board of 10 in their place, with one member from each Athenian tribe. Only one member of the 30 was re-elected on this new body of 10, though, and the rest fled the city and took refuge in Eleusis. Three factions were now contending for power in Attica. The Thirty, who held Eleusis, the Democrats with Thrasybulus, who held the Piraeus, and the Ten, who held Athens. This new body of Ten represented the views of those who were genuinely devoted to oligarchy, but disapproved of the extreme policy of Critias and his followers. Still, some of them had been the most zealous in trying to prevent the return of the exiles. 
As a result, they cemented their own downfall by failing to come to terms with Thrasybulus, who was calling for peace and union between the two camps, but who every day was receiving reinforcements, both in men and in arms. Therefore, the civil war continued, and the ten now found themselves following in the footsteps of Critias and his followers. According to Aristotle, out of fear that they too would be deposed, the Ten designed a plan to strike fear in their citizens by arresting Demaratus, one of the most eminent citizens, and executing him. This succeeded and gave them a firm hold on the government. Then, with the help of the cavalry commanders, they tried to calm the nerves of the city. At the same time, the cavalrymen slept in the Odeon with their horses and shields, and they patrolled the walls continuously in the evening, because those in the city now lived in constant fear that the men at Piraeus would come up and attack them. Furthermore, Thrasybulus had promised that those who joined their cause and fought alongside them would gain the right of isotelia, or equal taxation with that of citizens. This was especially alluring to the medics, as their usual tax rate was much higher. As a result, his forces were gathering in strength with each passing day. In particular, he had managed to gain about 70 cavalrymen, which began to make forays into the countryside, gathering wood and the fruit that was in season. In response, the Athenian cavalry from inside the city sometimes harassed them. At one point, a few of Thrasybulus's forces were captured, and despite protests from his own cavalrymen, the cavalry commander Lysimachus had their throats cut. So in retaliation, the men in Piraeus killed some of those in the countryside and made attacks on the Athenian walls. They then made preparations to bring siege engines up along the Lycian Dromos, which was a track for horse racing that ran through the site of the Lycaon that would have provided a pathway for the approach of siege machinery. Apparently, the engineer of this dromos in the city gave orders that oxen should be yoked together and large blocks of stone should be hauled in wagons and then deposited in the track so that each of the stones would prevent the enemy from bringing up the siege engines. Despite these countermeasures, it soon appeared that it would be impossible for the Athenian oligarchs to hold out against the Democrats and the Piraeus, so they sent an embassy to appeal to Sparta for help. At the same time, the remnants of the Thirty at Eleusis sent a message on their own account for the same purpose. Both embassies portrayed the Democrats at Piraeus as rebels against the Spartan alliance that needed to be extinguished. Ultimately, the Spartans, through the influence of Lysander, were induced to intervene. He thought that he could quickly bring the men of Piraeus to terms if he besieged them by land and by sea, and thus cut them off from their supplies. Then, he would install himself as Harmost, or governor of Athens. He also arranged that the thirty at Eleusis and the ten at Athens would each be given a loan of a hundred talents, which was a sum sufficient enough to hire an army of mercenaries. So Lysander's brother Libus was given command as admiral and was sent with forty ships to blockade the Piraeus and cut off the supplies which the Democrats received by sea, while he marched over land to Eleusis and gathered many Peloponnesian hoplites along the way. From Eleusis, he would lead a large army into Attica to restore the oligarchs in order to put his own people back in power. But as it happened, the murderous arrogance of Lysander and his associates had been making many powerful men at Sparta nervous, 
including the Spartan king Pausanias, who was much more conservative and who was his chief political opponent. In particular, Pausanias feared that if Lysander accomplished his goal here, he would not only win even more renown, but it would also gain complete control over Athens for himself. So he not only decided not to allow him to do that, but saw this as an opportunity to deprive him of his power and influence and to restore a more normal situation in Sparta. Therefore, he persuaded three of the five ephors to send out a Spartan army to deal with Thrasybulus, but not with Lysander or one of his people at the head of it. Instead, they entrusted Pausanias himself with the job of restoring stability in Athens. As a result, Lysander had the humiliation of handing over to his rival the army which he had just mustered. All of Sparta's allies had joined in the expedition, except the Boeotians and the Corinthians, who used as an excuse that sending troops against the Athenians would be a violation of the treaty, because an internal Athenian squabble was in no way threatening the peace. However, Xenophon says they actually refused to participate because they thought that the Spartans wanted to make Athens their own secure possession. The Greek, though, is ambiguous here. It could mean that the Spartans wished the Athenians to be their loyal allies, or less likely, that they themselves wanted to possess the actual city-state. Which is not something that the allies wished to see, as it would only strengthen the Spartans. Whatever the case, Pausanias took the lead and masterminded not only the reconciliation of the various Athenian parties, but also the eclipse, albeit temporary, of Lysander. He marched this combined Peloponnesian army into Attica and had his army set up camp in the Halipodon, a salt marsh to the northeast of Piraeus. He commanded the right wing, while Lysander with his mercenaries were on the left. Pausanias then sent heralds to Thrasybulus' forces, ordering them to depart, each to his own home. When they did not obey him, he ordered an attack so that it would not be evident that he was favorably inclined towards them. But in doing so, he kept his forces well away from the wall, and when this assault accomplished nothing, he led his troops back to camp. On the next day, he took some Spartan hoplites and some Athenian cavalrymen down to the so-called Quiet Harbor which is thought to be a small bay lying just to the west of the Great Harbor. He wanted to examine where and how the Piraeus could most easily be walled off. As he was departing, some men attacked and harassed his troops. Pausanias became annoyed and gave orders to his cavalry and the youngest and quickest Spartan soldiers to chase after them while he followed behind with the rest of the forces that he had brought along. The advance force killed about 30 lightly armed troops and pursued the rest to the theater of Dionysus in the Piraeus. It just so happened, though, that all of the peltasts and hoplites of Thrasybulus' army were arming themselves in the theater, and so the lightly armed troops were able to immediately run out and hurl their javelins, spears, arrows, and slings. Their missiles wounded many Spartans, forcing them to retreat slowly backwards but their withdrawal encouraged Thrasybulus' forces to attack them with more vigor, and in the process, both Spartan Polemarchoi, Charon and Thibrachus, were killed, as well as several other Spartiates. Xenophon says that these men were later all buried in the Karamikos. In fact, archaeological evidence has revealed the so-called tomb of the Lacedaemonians in the burial grounds of the Karamikos outside the walls of Athens. First excavated in 1930, this polyandrion, or communal tomb, 
shows evidence of Xenophon's account of the Spartan soldiers who died in the battle. An inscription that ran along the top of the tomb, now in the Karamikos Museum, was carved with the Greek letters Lambda Alpha for Lacidaemonian, as well as the names of the two Polemarchoi, Charon and Thibricus. It was written in the Doric rather than the Attic dialect, with the letters running from right to left, so the inscriptions could be read by those approaching the city. Fourteen skeletons with spear and arrow wounds were found carefully laid out in three chambers. Accommodating Spartan tradition, the warriors were buried without grave goods. Returning back to the action, when Thrasybulus saw the Spartan soldiers fall, he quickly deployed his hoplites in a line of eight men deep in front of the Halipodon salt marshes. Seeing that he was now greatly pressed, Pausanias retreated about a thousand yards towards the hill. As he withdrew, he ordered the rest of the Spartan and allied units back at the camp to march out to his position. There, he arranged his troops into a very deep phalanx and led them against Thrasybulus' army. In the ensuing battle, the Athenians were pushed back into the mud of the marshes and were defeated and forced back to the Piraeus. After erecting a victory trophy, Pausanias returned to his camp. About 150 Athenians had been killed, but they had fought bravely and inflicted serious losses on the Spartan army, so much so that Pausanias was unwilling to push the issue and instead tried to negotiate a settlement with both Thrasybulus and the oligarchs in the city. To Thrasybulus, he sent a herald in secret, instructing him to send in return heralds to himself and the ephors who were with him, and even informing him of exactly what they should request. It is customary for two ephors to march out with the king when on a campaign, and the two present at the moment were delighted with Pausanias' plan, as they were much more inclined towards his thinking than that of Lysander. Because of this, they eagerly sent to Sparta representatives from the men in Piraeus and those in Athens. Both sides let it be known that they were willing to hand over their respective territories and their people for the Spartans to do with as they wished, a formula for unconditional surrender. When the other three ephors and the Spartan assembly heard their proposals, they sent a commission of 15 Spartans to work together with Pausanias and reconcile the two parties as they could. When they arrived, Pausanias deposed the ten, and a more moderate second group of ten Athenians were chosen to join him and the fifteen other Spartans in reaching a peace settlement. The two most prominent members of this ten were Renon and Phalus, who, even before the arrival of Pausanias, had been in discussion with Thrasybulus. As part of the agreement, both the men in the city and those in the Piraeus were allowed to return to their own homes and each side was required to pay back all of the money that they had borrowed during the war. Most importantly, a general amnesty was agreed upon, the first such instance on the historical record. The Athenians decided that this was the best way to govern their liberated city-state and to reconcile the atrocities that had been committed by the Thirty. The amnesty declared that all were compelled to renounce all of their bitter grievances and that the general public was protected legally from prosecution for the acts that they committed before the democratic government was restored, except in cases where they personally committed a murder. The only ones who could be brought to justice for their past crimes were those who were thought to be responsible for the nasty things that had happened in Athens, including the 30 tyrants themselves the ten that the Thirty had put in charge of the Piraeus, the eleven prison magistrates appointed by the Thirty who acted as their police force, and the two boards of ten that had replaced the Thirty. 
But even then, these men were not necessarily executed. They were given 10 days to submit their accounts at their Athunai, which was the normal process in Athenian democracy when government officials accounted for the actions that they made during their terms. And if they cleared at these tribunals, they could take up their position as citizens in the restored Athenian democracy. In fact, according to Aristotle, during the Athunai of Renon and his colleagues on the second board of ten, due to their role in bringing about the end of the oligarchy, not one complaint was brought against them. They were all allowed to remain in the city, and Renon was immediately elected general. But not everyone involved was so lucky. Those who were not acquitted essentially lost their citizenship rights. They were allowed to leave Athens freely, without any harm, but had to return back to Eleusis. In addition, as part of the agreement, Eleusis was now recognized as a separate city-state, no longer just a deem of Athens. And like Athens, it too was bound to Sparta by an inferior alliance. Since the Eleusinians were now no longer Athenians, they also lost their privileges in the city of Athens. But the sanctuary of Demeter and Persephone at Eleusis would remain common ground for all, and under the influence of its two noble families, the Eumolpidae and Caracase. Basically, those at Eleusis could not enter Athens, nor could the Athenians enter Eleusis, except for the time of the mysteries, when both parties could step foot in each for religious celebrations. So in effect, it was a relatively moderate conclusion to what had been a bloody reign of terror. After this peace settlement was finalized, at some point in September of 403 BC, Pausanias led his army back to the Peloponnese, where he dismissed them to return to their homes. At the same time, Thrasybulus led his men, unopposed through Athens, up to the Acropolis, where they sacrificed their weapons to Athena and prayed for the salvation of the city and their own safe return. When they came down, an ad hoc meeting of the ecclesia was called. Thrasybulus immediately rose to speak, and although he scolded the oligarchs for their arrogance, he makes it known that there would be no more disorder as long as they reverted to the laws of old. It was then decreed, on the motion of a man named Tisamenos, that magistrates should be appointed to revise the constitution, and that in the meantime, the state should be administered according to the laws of Solon and the institutions of Draco. After the assembly was dismissed, the work of re-establishing democratic Athens officially began. Archon for that year was Euclides, but the credit for the success of the reconciliation should be given to his colleague, Archinus. Little is known about both men, but what we do know is that Archinus advocated for a moderate democratic policy and wielded substantial influence in the years following the restoration of the democracy. It's also likely that both men were friends, or at the very least, were political allies of Thrasybulus. Whatever the case, with Thrasybulus and Archinus in control, over the winter of 403-402 BC, oaths were sworn, the Athenians reinstated the democracy as it had been before, but without the benefit of an empire or a fleet this time, and they declared the new democratic government as the inauguration of a new era of harmony. We know from a fragment of a speech by Lysias that a man called Formisios proposed that citizenship should be restricted to landowners, but this was shot down. In fact, according to Aristotle, the exclusion of thetes from offices was no longer enforced, and Pericles' citizenship law, which was allowed to lapse during the war, was reaffirmed. 
Although the treaty required that each party pay back all that they had borrowed during the war, the Ecclesia voted to repay the 30s debts to the Spartans in order to calm things as fast as possible and to achieve some sense of stability. They also kept close to the amnesty and did not prosecute people that they should not have. In fact, according to Isocrates in his treatise against Callimachus, Archinus introduced the procedure of paragraphe, under which a defendant could plead for a prosecution in breach of the amnesty to be disallowed. In doing so, the newly restored democracy behaved with remarkable moderation, which is why Aristotle goes out of his way to praise the successor regime. Furthermore, Aristotle says that when Thrasybulus requested Athenian citizenship for all those medics who had served in his army and had helped restore the democracy, at the urging of Archinus, the Athenian people voted no. Archinus even opposed the restoration of pay for civil service that had typified the golden days of the radical democracy. A more radical response here would have been to expand the citizenship roles and to give them pay, but he clearly was a man of moderate views. Furthermore, at another point, when a particular man violated the amnesty, Archinus brought him before the boule and persuaded them to execute the man without trial by telling them that now they would have to show whether they wished to preserve the democracy and abide by their oaths, because if they let this man escape, they would encourage others to imitate him, but if they executed him, they would make an example for all to learn from. And this was exactly what happened because after this man had been put to death, no one ever again broke the amnesty. Proposals were also made that sought to deal with the challenge of the potentially disruptive minority who had supported oligarchy in the first place. In particular, one of the first steps that Archinus took in the early days of the restored democracy was to weaken the oligarchic exiles at Eleusis, though it's likely that he did this unintentionally. According to Aristotle, those who had fought on the side of the Thirty had felt considerable apprehensions about whether the amnesty would hold but they were also torn about leaving Athens for Eleusis. Naturally then, they waited until the last moment to decide whether to remain or to leave. Archinus was anxious to retain them as citizens, so he closed the enrollment period for which citizens could register to emigrate to Eleusis before its announced ending date. Consequently, almost all of the members of the Thirty and their chief officers did not return to Athens for their Athunai, but instead remained in Eleusis, and many of those with oligarchic tendencies, who may have fled Athens, stayed in the city. However, we know from Lysias' law court speech, titled Against Eratosthenes, that at least two members of the Thirty, Phidon and Eratosthenes himself, had not gone to Eleusis in the first place. Lysias is both the author and the speaker in the speech, which is considered to be among the most famous of his works. It is unclear whether this speech was delivered at Eratosthenes' Athunai, at a separate homicide trial, or if it was even actually delivered at all. Regardless of when or in what form the speech took place, Lysias' argument consists of two distinct sections. First, a general attack on Eratosthenes and the other members of the Thirty by pointing out their collective corruption before and after the pro-Spartan regime was installed. And secondly, a cross-examination of Eratosthenes himself. As Eratosthenes had overseen the arrest of Lysias, his brother Polemarchus, and their fellow medics on charges of general hostility and resistance to the Thirty, as we mentioned earlier. 
in the speech, he argues that these were trumped-up charges, just so the 30 could have a reason to confiscate their substantial wealth and property. The subsequent execution of Polemarchus is one of the subjects of the speech. When he was questioned about it during his cross-examination, Eratosthenes maintained that he was simply following the orders of his superiors, and that he personally did not command much authority. Unfortunately, no evidence exists for the outcome of the trial, or again, if whether the speech was ever actually delivered. But one thing is clear, as a non-citizen, Lysias would not have been able to deliver the speech himself in court. Therefore, some scholars believe that Lysias wrote the speech hypothetically and circulated it in a pamphlet just to voice his opinions on the matter, though it has been suggested that Lysias may have been granted citizenship by the democracy after the 30 were expelled, in which case he could have delivered his own speech in the court. In addition, Archinus is said to have encouraged the official adoption of a standardized alphabet. We discussed the early history of Greek alphabets way back in episode 9, but by the late 5th century BC, usage of the newer Ionic alphabet side-by-side side with Attic had become commonplace in private writing, though official documents were still being written in the older Attic. And for some reason, in 403-402 BC, a formal decree was passed that public writing would switch to the 24-letter Ionic alphabet that we know today. It is believed that this decree was based on political considerations rather than artistic or language development. Still, this new alphabet now included the letter eta, which had been in use in other dialects, introduced for the first time at the end, the letter omega, and standardized the representation of various sounds that had varied from one dialect to another. Despite this, there are still some inscriptions from Athens which continue to use the old Attic spelling. This new system was also called the Euclidean alphabet, after the name of the Archon Euclides, who oversaw the decision. The following year, in 402 BC, Diodorus records that the inhabitants of Oropus on the Attic-Boeotian border fell into civil strife and exiled some of their citizens. For a time, the exiles attempted to return to their city by their own means, but eventually, they turned to the Thebans to send an army to assist them. The fact that they turned to Thebes rather than Athens reflects the latter's weakness at this moment. The Thebans took the field against the Europeans, and after defeating their army and taking the city by storm, they resettled the inhabitants. They were allowed to have their own government for some time, but eventually they were given Theban citizenship, and their city, previously on the border, now fell under the territory of Boeotia. This incident and its timing are puzzling. Though more powerful than Athens at the time, the Thebans had no serious reason to antagonize a state that had just protected referring to its protection of Athenian exiles, and support to Thrasybulus against the Thirty Tyrants. And so, given the long and tangled tale, it appears that the Europeans preferred assimilation with the Boeotians to Athenian administration, whereas the latter had never incorporated them into the traditional system of deems, the Thebans now provided them with a legal place within the Boeotian confederacy. As such, the Europeans enjoyed greater rights as Boeotians than as Athenians. The whole episode may well have amounted to a local affair in which the Europeans chose their own friends. Whatever the details, the Athenians could not have relished the thought of losing this vital region, even to a much-needed supporter. For their part, the Thebans were perhaps indifferent to the feelings of a state that badly needed their help, and whose claim to Europus was dubious. 
Another indication of this attitude comes from the incident in which the Thebans made reprisals because the Athenians could not repay a debt of two talents. Yet, so long as the Spartan threat persisted, the Athenian and Theban friendship endured, but was in many respects little more than a marriage of convenience. These incidents, for the moment, seemed minor when contrasted to the more serious and pressing Spartan menace. But Oropus would henceforth hang like a cloud over the two states for the rest of the next century. Despite the moderate measures enacted by the restored democracy, it was a struggle for Athens and their citizens to reconcile and rebuild, as it was easier to forgive than forget. And for many years after the reconciliation, a distinction was drawn, though not officially, between the men of the city and the men of the Piraeus. Furthermore, in this period of transition, citizenship was limited to the top three Salonian classes. But that quickly fell through, and the full democracy was finally restored by 401 BC, just two years later. At the same time, many continued to suspect the loyalty of the oligarchs' old supporters in Athens. Therefore, in 401 BC, when news reached Athens that the men at Eleusis were trying to hire mercenary soldiers to regain the city, it didn't take much difficulty to convince the entire Athenian citizen body to break the truce and to strike before they had the opportunity to strengthen their forces. As the entire Athenian army bore down on the city-state of Eleusis, the Eleusinian generals came out to meet with their Athenian counterparts. But instead, they were captured and put to death. The Athenian generals then sent men who were friends and relatives of the rest at Eleusis into their city to persuade them to come to agreement. Ultimately, neither side wanted to fight, so instead, both parties swore oaths not to remember past wrongdoings and to live as fellow citizens once again. Eleusis thus resumed its old place as a deem of Attica, and its inhabitants once again were Athenians with full citizenship rights. Oligarchical resistance to Athenian democracy was now thoroughly squashed. One of the hallmarks of Athenian democracy was the theater. We are unsure if productions were halted during the rule of the Thirty, and if they had been, when they were restored. But we do know that in 401 BC, Sophocles' final play, Oedipus at Colonus, was staged posthumously by his grandson, who was also named Sophocles. We discussed this play in great detail in episode 51. And so, by the end of 401 BC, Athens may have seemed to be exactly as it had been internally before the defeat in the Peloponnesian War. However, one major change was the amount of Athenians still around. Estimates vary, but prior to the war, Attica probably held between 250,000 to 300,000 people, though only 40,000 to 50,000 of those were likely to have been citizens, or adult male Athenians. About 50,000 total had died of the plague, many of which did so before they had the chance to reproduce. War casualties seem to have included at least 5,000 hoplites and 12,000 sailors, including the 3,000 executed by Lysander after the Battle of Aegis Potami, as well as the 1,500 citizens killed by the 30 tyrants. Therefore, the number of adult male citizens alive at the end of the war, about 20,000 to 25,000, was probably half of what it had been when it began. The Athenians even had to take the extraordinary step of offering citizenship to medics and slaves during the latter stages of the war just to man their fleet. 
But despite this, as we mentioned, Archinus had pushed back against Thrasybulus's attempt to enfranchise his non-citizen soldiers. Ultimately, though, the dwindling number of Athenian citizens began to cause concern for the Athenian people, and so they voted to increase their numbers in 400 BC when a decree was finally passed that honored those who assisted in the restoration of the democracy by giving full Athenian citizenship to those who joined the march from Phylae to Piraeus. An isotelii, or equality in taxation with that of citizens, to those medics who fought with the exiles at Munichia. The costs of the long and brutal Peloponnesian War were not just enormous in Athens, though. Population numbers dropped rapidly in most parts of the Greek world, as the loss of life in the last third of the 5th century BC was unprecedented and, in some places, absolutely devastating. Some cities, like Milos and Scione, had been virtually annihilated, and their entire male populations were slaughtered, while the females and children were sold off into slavery. Plataea lost a great portion of its population and was forced to relocate to Athens. In Sparta, absolute numbers dropped less sharply, but their citizen population had been declining since the mid-5th century BC, and casualties in the war only assisted this decline. At the same time, Victory in the war brought unprecedented quantities of foreign wealth into Sparta. Though wealth and money previously had not been as totally absent as the Spartans later liked to imagine. As a result, there was a growing division within the citizen body between the very rich families and the rest. It is not clear how much this divide is due to an absolute shortage of men of citizenship ancestry, or how far it reflects the downgrading of men unable to pay their mess dues. In any case, an increasingly ambitious Sparta had as its base a decreasing number of citizens, while the various classes began to redefine themselves, as the ranks of both commanders and the regular foot soldiers were swelled not only by distinguished Muthakes, or children of Spartiate fathers and Helot mothers, but also by Helot fighters rewarded with freedom, known as Neodomides, or New Citizens. The economic consequences of the war were also grave. The Athenians obviously lost their empire, which put an end to the source of their great public wealth. But other city-states, like Corinth, Megara, and Sicyon, suffered immense economic death, as commerce by land and sea was disrupted for almost three decades. The Athenians had shut them out entirely from the Aegean, and at the very least, severely curtailed their trade with the West. Even more so, agricultural production suffered the most throughout Greece, although not presumably in Sparta, where Helots continued to till the land. The labor of women and slaves was not sufficient enough to compensate for the death of farmers or for their long campaigns away from home. But economic damage, even when it did not involve the loss of life, was severe in other regards, particularly in Attica and the Megarid. A good deal of territory was regularly ravaged, including the economically important grapevines and olive trees, and livestock and farming tools were also destroyed. Vines took several years of nurture before they once again could produce a rich crop of grapes, and damage brought by the destruction of olive trees was even longer lasting, as newly planted trees generally took about 15 years to produce their first olives. Some wealthier families who had stored up money and valuable goods could weather the crisis by using their savings, but most people had no financial cushion to fall back on. When their harvests were destroyed by the enemy, 
Farmers who were used to toiling in their own fields thus had to scrounge for work as day laborers in the city. But such jobs became increasingly scarce as the pool of men looking for them grew over time. Therefore, some erstwhile farmers were driven to take service as mercenary soldiers in foreign armies, which became an increasingly popular profession. In addition, throughout Greece, poverty caused by the restriction of trade or the degradation of farmland pushed a significant number of men beneath the hoplite census, as they no longer had the requisite wealth to pay for their equipment. In what usually happens in wartime, the loss of thousands upon thousands of soldiers and sailors left many women without husbands and brothers. As a result, many of the moderately well-off women, who had traditionally done weaving at home for their own families and supervised the work of household slaves, were now forced to work outside the home to support themselves and their children. They filled the only jobs open to them in such low-paying occupations as wet nurses, weavers, or even vineyard laborers. In one anecdote, Xenophon in his memorabilia records a conversation between Socrates and Aristarchus, who complained that as a result of the political turmoil produced by the political upheaval in Athens, an assortment of homeless female relatives, sisters, nieces, and cousins, presumably whose husbands had been murdered, had moved into his house. And as a result, he now had to support a total of 14 people, not counting the slaves. Socrates suggested that these relatives be put to work making clothes, something they already knew quite well how to do, and that these could be sold for profit. Opportunities for paid work within one's own home like this must have been abnormal though, and no doubt were only due to the tumultuous times. This brought more women into public view but it did not lead to a woman's movement in the modern sense or to any inclusion of women in Athenian political life. For example, the orator Demosthenes, in his legal speech titled Against Eubolidus, mentions this with great shame. Quote, we do not live in the way we would like. End quote. As we discussed in episode 74, although it is impossible to assess what proportion of Athenian women took on paid work or how easy it was for them to find it, it is clear that there was still a stigma attached to the working woman. But even for those lucky enough to still have their husbands or brothers, new patterns of labor within the oikos developed as well, as free women were more likely to work at home producing goods not only for in-house consumption, but for sale at the market in order to make more money. At the same time, Men and women who worked as crafts producers and small merchants or business owners in the city still had their livelihoods, but their income levels suffered because consumers had less money to spend. The long 27-year Peloponnesian War also undermined the polis-citizen relationship, as there was something unprecedented about these three decades of conflict. Until this time, Greek warfare had observed almost courtly rules of play. When winter came, fighting ceased because using citizens for fighting and farming season violated both decorum and common sense. There was a time to plow and a time to fight, and it was not the same time. Previously, important conflicts, and even so-called wars, could be decided by brief hoplite encounters on level ground. Although the growth of Athenian naval power had begun to change this, Never before the Peloponnesian War did fighting become the central fact of life in both hot and cold weather. The use of mercenaries and the periodic emergency enfranchisement of helots and slaves blurred the lines that had traditionally divided citizens from non-citizens, 
and eroded the concept of the citizen soldier and the citizen sailor. In addition, within the cities, the dangers and hardships of the long war only exacerbated the existing factional conflict as violent and vicious civil wars broke out everywhere between Democrats and oligarchs. Anger, frustration, and the desire for vengeance increased as the war dragged on, and this gave rise to a progression of atrocities rarely or not at all known before that time. Essentially, the frequency of bloody civil strife eroded the concept of the polis itself. In Athens, the democracy had lost the war, and with the navy now limited to just 12 ships, the lower-class oarsmen were not going to be important in the immediate future. But the oligarchy, set up with Spartan support, was to prove so unpleasant that when the democracy was restored, it proved exceptionally stable. However, the defeat of Athens in the war was ultimately a blow to the prospects for democracy in other Greek cities. That's because, throughout history, the influence of political systems on people outside them is closely connected with their success in war. The democratic constitution of a powerful and successful Athens was a magnet and a model for others, even in the heart of the Peloponnese. But Athens' loss in the war against Sparta was taken as proof of the inadequacy of its political system. Athenian failures were seized upon as democratic errors, and ordinary human mistakes and misfortunes were judged to be the peculiar consequences of democracy. Therefore, it was a decisive turning point in the political development of Greece back towards oligarchy rather than democracy. On the other hand, the long war taught Sparta a vital lesson about the centrality of naval power. When the Spartans themselves finally took to the sea, the Athenians lost an important advantage lost the war, and lost their empire. Archidamus' prediction that the Spartans would leave the war to their sons had proven true, but had he survived the war, he would have been astonished to learn that the conflict ended in a great naval victory for Sparta, in alliance with the very Persians that they had been so proud to have defeated 75 years earlier. Pericles, on the other hand, didn't foresee a war so long, so bitter, so costly, and so destructive. Sparta had set out to break the Athenian Empire and to liberate the Greeks. By the end of the war, the Athenian Empire was indeed broken, and shortly afterwards, we see Sparta paying dues to a Delian sanctuary freed from Athenian control. But in spite of its apparently decisive outcome, the war did not establish a stable balance of power to replace the uneasy one between Greece's two superpowers, nor did it create a new order that brought a general peace for a generation or more. The declared purpose of liberating the Greek subject cities of Athens became a mockery even before the war had ended, because as we will see, the war did not solve the problems of power within Greece. The ultimate effect of the war was the replacement of the Athenian Empire with a Spartan one. The members of the Delian League found themselves not liberated, but taken over by either Persia or Sparta. The Spartans were willing to sell out their fellow Greeks to the Persians, who recovered many Greek cities in Asia Minor. On the other hand, Lysander held many others by installing narrow oligarchies and Spartan garrisons in the cities formerly in the Athenian Empire and by reimposing tribute to Sparta. The Spartans' actions here presaged ill for freedom, and the worst was yet to come. As Thucydides has the Athenians predict before the war, the Spartans soon became no less unpopular in the Aegean than they were. 
they would also become unpopular with their allies in mainland Greece, such as Thebes and Corinth, who saw their wishes ignored in the final settlement and who ultimately derived a little benefit from being on the winning side in the war. Therefore, Sparta's victory over Athens brought only a temporary rise in Spartan influence far beyond its normal sphere. That's because the Spartans ultimately lacked the resources to maintain the empire that they had just won, or to control events outside the Peloponnese for very long. Their attempts to do so only brought division and weakness to their own state and to the rest of Greece. As we will see, the Athenians had greater strength than was apparent at its moment of defeat, and in time it would reassert itself. Ultimately, the Peloponnesian War did not destroy the Greek world, but it did transform it. In Athens in particular, the loss of population, the ravages of the plague, and the financial constraints brought on by the war caused particularly special difficulties. Not even the amnesty that accompanied the restoration of their democracy could quell all the social and political animosities that the war and the rule of the 30 tyrants had exacerbated. As is so often the case throughout history, when things are going bad, people like to turn to a scapegoat to absolve the blame and ostensibly their problems. Classical Athens would not be any different, and the most prominent casualty of this divisive bitterness was arguably Greece's most famous philosopher. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 109, Socrates. (music) 